the Jason Cabinets experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time at HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. Our guest today is Vlada. Vlada, you ready to be great today? Good to be here, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. No, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. So, softball question to start off. What do you do for fun? Um, I hike, uh, I cycle, and I do Aikido. Okay, I have no idea what that last thing is. Um, martial arts. Okay, okay. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? Um, I've been doing that for for a little under a year. Under a year? Yeah. Do you do so you take like uh, weekly training sessions or yeah just weekly classes so it's it's I found this very old lady mm-hmm. in my area so she's like in her what eighties I uh-huh. guess um, and she's a martial arts trainer at eighty years old yeah still she, keep kicking yeah, people's ass she's ki- still kicking people's ass she's awesome so she inspires me. So what's your goal? You want to like go and like get a black belt in this, or just you just doing like for your no, like, keeping shape? I do it too. So there's this thing called embodiment, right? So I do it to develop certain skills. So martial arts help me to stay sharp, help me to stay focused, and help me to become more organized. Okay. Um, and how long have you been doing it? For a little under a year. Year, that's yeah. you said that. Uh, and so like this one time I'm waiting to find out, like every time like across my in-person podcast, most people in Seattle when I ask what do you for fun? Everyone says hiking. I'm waiting for the first person to say, say, not to say hiking, right? Everyone here says hiking or some kind of outside stuff, right? Yeah. I go hiking, you know. Like, I saw a meme somewhere, like, uh, the joke was, like, for the first day in Seattle, like, a guy asked a girl, can we, you know, go somewhere? I don't know you. We're going to be a public place. Second day, the girl says, let's go hiking, right? (laughs) Yeah. All of my friends do hiking, and I actually haven't met a single person in Seattle who doesn't do hiking, except probably my husband you know <laughs> he's the only person so do you have any, any, any favorite hiking places um i really like the poopoo point mm-hmm. it's really cute and where else um i do really small hikes okay um so i like well you're small but be big to me so when you, what, <laughs> okay. what's the difference in a small um like two three miles okay, so yeah. nothing major um however you know i'm a very active person 
I did climb Mount Elbrus. It's like the biggest Europe, uh, the biggest mountain in the European region. So um, I can do big routes, big hikes, but I'm just not interested in so it right now. Pretty active, though. Yeah. You already know if someone says, let's go to a hike. Oh, no. It'd be a small hike. It's only two miles. They'd be like two miles straight up. Yeah, like that. <laughs> With elevation of 2,000 feet. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, so how long have you been in Seattle? So I moved to Seattle in February 2020, literally a week before the pandemic hit. Great timing. Yeah. And um, I've been to Seattle before mm -hmm. a few times and because I was the one who was picking the place where we would move to. Mm -hmm. And um, I love Seattle the most because my husband had a bunch of offers like California, mm -hmm. Mountain View, New Jersey, New York. But I said, no, we're going to go to Seattle because um, this is the prettiest place I've been to. So. And, and y'all moved here from Russia, correct? Yeah. So is a flight, does a flight go from like Russia over Europe? Or does it go from like Russia over Asia? No, it goes over Europe. Okay. And um, it's actually a very long journey. <laughs> I can imagine. Now even worse. So um, you have an interesting background, right? Like yeah. you, you've done a little bit of everything. You were born in Russia, <laughs> mm -hmm. but you moved to South Africa at seven years old. Yep. Do you remember anything about that move? Oh, I do. Okay. I do. It's um, I actually love South Africa. It, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. I'm guessing because your parents got a job there or something like that. Yeah. Well, the reason is, you know, it was in the early 90s when my parents moved to South Africa. And it was the time when the USSR collapsed. So it was a time of great political shift. And there were so many hungry and poor people there. Mm -hmm. And my dad was, he was, he's always been very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So he was one of the first people in Russia who actually started bringing cars from the States mm -hmm. to Russia to sell them. And he managed to build like this impressive, great business. But just like everything <laughs> works in Russia, um, there are always people who really like good businesses. Mm -hmm. So he got into a clash with the uh, with the Russian mafia. So my parents had to flee the country. Okay, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> on, no. a, on any level, business level, personal <laughs> living level, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, um, I mean, it's kind of interesting to talk about now, because, you know, as a kid, I barely remembered it. It's just, we discussed it with my family. Um, when I grew up, they explained how it all worked back then. And honestly, that's not the time when I would want to be an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they had friends who moved to South Africa, which was a very weird destination for yeah, a person. You, you would think maybe France or Germany or, you know, like somewhere close to Europe. But yeah, yeah. that's a random, I will say random. I'm sure that a reason to go to South Africa. There was, there was a reason why um, there were, there was like this certain type of immigrants mm -hmm. who moved to South Africa hoping that they would get a piece of gold rush. Oh yeah, I forgot so, about that. Yeah, people yeah. were tr still trying to kind of mine gold. Uh, or whatever they do with it, like go to the river and sift it and mm -hmm. try to find gold. So, um, and my parents went there because their friends were there doing that. But my dad quickly realized that it's not a way <laughs> forward, you know, it's a little bit too late for that. Yeah. So um, I went to primary school there and I was the only Russian kid in a school. Was Russian the only language you spoke at the time? Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I what, had, are they, what are they speaking in South Africa? 
Um, they have they have many languages okay. in South Africa. I think they have up to 11 languages. Um, but people who speak all those languages, they can understand each other. So, um, but I was, I had to learn English because it was the most common language. And um, it took me a while, but you know, kids, they adapt real quick. So I adapted and um, I made a few good friends there. Um, but like what, two or three years later, my dad found this amazing business idea that he decided to bring from South Africa back to Russia because, you know... The so Ruff he was off the mafia list then? Yeah, yeah. So he was good, and um, he actually managed to bring this idea, develop it, and he, he built a huge manufacturing plant, manufacturing facility in Russia, so he made, like, a really good business out of it. So you're in South Africa for like two or three years? Yeah. Have you been back there since then? Yes, I've been there when I was, what? When I was 16. Okay. Because um, I was hoping that I would go into university um, there, but then <laughs> this story, you know, they, there is a saying that the history has a way of repeating mm -hmm. itself. So when my dad uh, built this amazing manufacturing facility, Russian mafia was after him once again. <laughs> So. It's like the Russian mafia is like one of y'all's parts of government in Russia. It is. It is. Yeah. It's just um, those people. They look. Um, they look nice. Um, they're well educated, um, but they just like taking things that are not theirs. So. And so, what part of Russia did you grow up in? I grew up in Moscow, in the okay. capital. Okay. Yeah. I was very fortunate. So, like, I'm like pretty much born and raised there. Yeah. Okay. So, what what's it like? Of course, in America, you know, you know the history of Russia, you know, like I, I took a lot of history classes, you know, like when uh, Gorbachev took over and made mm -hmm. all the changes, you know, you had to live like, you know, Peter the Great, all these like bad leaders, you know, Stalin, all these different leaders. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it seemed like I'm a per per person, like it seems like when you're in the United States, you're kind of lucky. If you're born in Russia, like you're kind of unlucky, right? Because the system you put in, I mean, like, how do y'all overcome all that stuff? Like, I mean, you have a lot of great stuff, you know, but what's it like living in Russia? It depends on your political views, but living in Russia is actually great because the people are very smart, people are very talented, and... Um, it's almost like if y'all could just get a decent leader, a decent form of government, you know? It's not that simple. Okay, so... Uh, We've had a lot of debate about this, especially after the war started, you know. Um, and I think even a decent leader would not be able to solve all the problems of the Russian people. Because just like you mentioned, Stalin, Peter the Great, there was this tendency for the Russian people to be oppressed by bad leaders. And I think that has traumatized the population so much that people are not willing to take responsibility for good life. So by that, I mean that, you know, if you want to have like this amazing, good looking lawn in front of your house, you have to mourn it, right? And then the homeowners association will go by and check it. Whilst in Russia, people are just not willing to put the work to maintain what they have. Is that because they think the government should, so you said the government doing stuff for them? I think, no, I think that's because government always takes, just like in this example, this history of my dad, like I mentioned, if you manage to do something nice, if you manage to build a good business, somebody will come and take it away from you. So what's the point? And I think this this just, um, it just happened to 
many people because there was this uh, period in history um, in the mid um, in the middle of the 20th century when beginning of the 20th century uh, when you know the Tsar family was killed and when people whatever they had that that's been taken away by the by the government, you know, so it's just the history is repeating itself. So people got traumatized by that. And now they're just not willing to do anything because on some subconscious level, they know it will be taken away from them in short. <laughs> so you mentioned your father's an entrepreneur. I'm sure there's a entrepreneurs in Russia. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, on the surface, you think like Russia would be like one of the last countries that would like be an entrepreneurial place to be at. <laughs> Can you talk about the entrepreneurial mindset of people in Russia? Mm-hmm. Well, You'll be surprised, but Russian people are very entrepreneurial. Um, I don't know if you've seen this um, this movie Tetris on Apple TV. Um, it's about this game Tetris. It was very, very popular, and it originated in the Soviet Union. So this is one of the examples of you know how entrepreneurial Russian people can get. So. Russian people love to create things. They they're very capable of doing it. They they're very just like I mentioned. They're very talented and um, very very smart and clever. So you know, smart and clever people can do really cool stuff. So I know Russia. I could be wrong. But Russia is like one of the largest land masses of any nation in the world, right? Do you think that's another challenge too? Like Russia leaders have to like manage this country from like. Asia all the way to Europe, like different cultures, different personalities, obviously like different weather patterns, all that kind of stuff? That's a good question, Jason. Um, So there is a big part of Russia that is occupied by um, just by animals and it's very, very cold there. So not many people live there. So if you actually look at the map, so let's imagine this is the... um, territory of Russia, right? So people occupy like this part that looks like a smile. So there is like this huge chunk of land in the middle of the country that's not occupied. So there there can be some um, oil drillings and all that kind of stuff there, but there are not many big cities where people live. So just like if you compare the population of Russia to the population of the United States, you know, both are very big countries in terms of territory, but the population of the United States is almost two and a half times bigger. So um, I don't think the Russian government has a lot a lot of issues to deal with. It's just um, they want to be wealthy. <laughs> yeah, so let's assume everybody's at peace. There's no war. Everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. If someone was going to go to visit Moscow, yeah. what are some places you recommend them to see? Both like well, touristy and like we say like non tourist stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like of course people go to Seattle, you go to Space Center, right? But what do you really want? Like, what's a non like a place you would take them? Like, no tourist would go to. Okay, uh, well, I would definitely recommend to visit the Red Square, which is the right center of Moscow, um, where you can get to see the Kremlin. Um, if you're lucky, get inside the Kremlin because they do like tours. Well, they used to do guided tours over there. I don't know if they do them now, but it was it was beautiful. And um, I would highly recommend going just to Russian restaurants, not specifically that serve Russian cuisine, but just in general Russian restaurants because they are so good. 
the food is delicious. I think Russian chefs are probably among the best chefs in the world right now because there's been a huge rise of um, uh, cooking experts. So it's just the interiors of the restaurants are amazing. The food is delicious. So that's like number one. Even when I go back home, and I've traveled quite a bit um, in the last three years, despite the pandemic, so I went. I just kept going to restaurants, you know. <laughs> so obviously, there's no such thing as an average Russian. Well, what's something about the average Russian that the American doesn't understand? Another good question. Okay, so. And of course, I'm gonna expect you to talk for every. Russian citizen, of course. Yeah. Well, I think what not not just only, you know, an average American would not understand, but a lot of people from well-developed countries probably would not understand um, is the way how Russians rely on luck. And in Russian language, there is a word that says a voice. And I've been trying to find an alternative, a synonym in English language, so I could explain it to um, to English-speaking people. But there is no such there is no such thing. So I think luck is probably the best term. So that by that I mean that people are hoping that whether they put the effort or they do not put the effort, things will somehow work out. So random question. Do Russians really drink that much vodka like we see on American TV, or is that just a stereotype? <laughs> um, it depends where. So an average Russian does consume vodka. It's a national drink. People love it. Um, I think it's more popular in the poorer communities. And given that there is a big chunk of Russian population that's very poor, so it is a very popular drink. And do you drink vodka too? Used to. Used yes. to, okay. All right. Well, do, you have, do you have a favorite brand name you used to drink? Used to drink? Um, yeah, like Finland. Okay. You like that one? Yeah. Is there like a Russian brand vodka? Uh, oh, there are so many. There are so many, like Smirnoff used okay, to be Smirnoff, Russian. Okay, Smirnoff, that's right. Okay. So, I forgot um, about them. There was, I think, I'm not sure if Absolute is a Russian vodka. I think they're Swedish. I think I they're Swedish. I think, yeah. I think so, too. Um, what else? Well, there are some brands that are like Seven Lakes. They're mm. not exported into okay. anywhere in the world, but they're very popular in Russia. So so if someone wants to, like, I don't know, take a visit, someone lives in Moscow, they won't go visit Paris. Can they, can they drive there? Everything's flights from Russia to Europe. Is it possible to drive? I'm sure it'd be like a long I mean, hell of a drive, but. It, it was possible before the war. Um, there was actually even a train going from Moscow to Paris. So okay. you could get a train. I, I don't know how many hours it would take, like probably not even an overnight, maybe three or four days by train from Moscow to Paris. But um, I had a lot of friends who used to drive across Europe um, from Moscow. But now, because because of the war, um, I would not recommend it. Yeah. And last time you've been to Russia was back in 2020, right? No, it was actually in 20... It was last year. Last year? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so what's, what's uh, of course, when I ask, ask you, like, answer for every Russian person, but, like, what's, on the average Russian on the street, what's their attitude to the war? Like, are they, like, for it, against it? I mean, because here in the news, American news, like, all the Russian people are against it, you know, everyone there hates Putin, but he's a leader, you know. I'm sure it's, it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that, for sure. 
it's more complicated. Um, so propaganda works, you know, propaganda machine, it does its job. And a lot of people who were um, initially against the war, they now support it. Just because, you know, there is no independent media, there is no independent um, news, so people would just consume the information that the government wants them to consume. Yeah, and plus, you know, on the news is saying, you know, the Ukrainians killed your Russian sons and daughters, right? Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. all the pictures and plays part of it, you know, and then you forget why the war started. Well, it doesn't matter if it starts for good or bad reasons, They're, you know, our, our boys are getting killed over there, so you gotta go come together and, you know, support the war. Yeah, you know it's it's pretty dramatic when it comes to to the discussion of the war because um, a lot of my friends they do not support the war they fled the country so now they're just scattered across the globe from Bali to London anywhere, um, but the people who do not who did not have the financial opportunity of like leaving the country. Um, they stay there, so they're trying to survive. Um, but I think the biggest hypocrisy of the Russian media and Russian government right now um, is that they use the pictures and like um, videos of Russians attacking Ukrainians and just presenting them to Russian people as if those are Ukrainian people attacking Russians. So this is like the biggest hypocrisy I've ever seen, I guess, in my life. Um, but that that does lead to people believing that, you know, they're fighting for something noble. They're trying to restore Russian empire or some kind of weird shit like that. <laughs> and then you got to think, what kind of advice was Putin taking, right? I mean, like, because this, I mean, it backfired a big time. I mean, he invaded to get NATO out, out, out the borders, right? But now we're in Finland and all the other countries join NATO. So he has even more border where NATO than he ever did before, you know. Mm-hmm. So that backfired. And I guess he thought, his generals told him, oh, Ukraine, you know, they didn't do anything in Crimea. They sat down to do the same thing here, which obviously did not do, right? And, and then, like, because uh, I was in the Army, the U.S. for 25 years, and I was talking to my Army buzz, like, it's just boggling, like, we were, like, we go across the world, fight wars in Iraq, Afghanistan. And basically, they invaded a country next to them and like bogged down, got bogged down for logistics, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, it's like there was like no plan at all, right? I don't know. Well, there was a plan, and a lot of media just mentioned that. I think it, there were a few articles in New York Times and Washington Post um, about Putin's initial plan. Just like you mentioned, they hoped that, you know, they would just go there, they would just go into Kiev, just like they went to Crimea. And they would just succeed, but that's not how it worked. So everything just went to pieces and that's how the complications started. Yeah, but I don't know, I don't know what's the reason behind it, why they thought that Ukraine would not fight back. It's just, it appears to me that somebody is growing old uh, and just living in his own delusional world. Yeah, and I think this might have played a factor too, like the the current president of of Ukraine, Zelensky, I think, I mean, he was like a freaking comedian, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no political experience. So they probably, oh, this comedian's in office. He doesn't know what to do. We just, you know, you know to go to punk him, right? And he, like, he showed up for the moment, right? I mean, like, you, yeah. I mean, you can say Ukraine. I know a lot of people say Ukraine's a, like a, what's the word for, um, corrupt country, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like Zelensky won on a, you know, joke, whatever. But I mean, he stepped up, right? I mean, he's, he's been a real leader since all this happened. I think they, def- they definitely overestimated him, I think. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I think Zelensky is a great politician and a great person. 
So because he stepped up for his people. So mm-hmm. and he kind of showed that he's not there just for the power or the money mm-hmm. or anything. He's just there to protect the country. I, but I guess just like with any leader, there are people who are against him, people mm-hmm. who are supporting him. But in my personal view, what he's doing mm-hmm. is just amazing. Yeah. Um, of course, you're not a politician or an army person, right? But what do you see? Do you think this war is ever going to end or do you think it's going to keep on going for a long time? Because I know Russia, Putin's not going to back down, I don't think, as long as he's, you know, he's in power. And of course, Zilchi, he can't back down because you know, he's getting all this money from the United States and NATO to support him, right? So that seems like what a stalemate. I know, like, and then you see like, all the like, stuff Russia's doing, you know, all the, uh, what's the for? Accusations against him as like war crimes mm-hmm. and stuff, phosphorus bombings, you know, Ukraine supposedly, they're like, Bombing stuff or wrestling deny, you know, it's like this, like, can be a never ending process, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the war will go on, unfortunately. And just like you mentioned, uh, Mr. P will not be willing to step down. Um, there is there is no sanity, there is no logic behind what's happening, or, and you know, probably we don't know. <laughs> the reasoning uh, behind it all, but um, they currently say in the Russian media that the war will last. Mm. So they, they made that in the Russian media? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, I'm pretty sure when they first started out that, oh, the war will be over three, but the two or three months, and they're like, okay, we can't, we can't lie all, all that much. We at least tell some truth that the Russian people know it's gonna be on like that. Um, yeah, well, this- they, you know, they, were not using the war, the word "war" for a while. They were just saying that it's it's a special military operation mm-hmm. to, to get at the Nazis. Yeah, just like that. But right now they are, and and they still haven't labeled the military action as the war. Mm-hmm. However, in the media, they finally started to use this war and uh, this word, and they say that the war um, will last as long as it's needed for Russia to succeed. Yeah, of course, a big fear of everyone, especially in the United States, you know, like, that, you know, I remember, I remember like a few months ago, some uh, Russian missiles accidentally landed in Poland, right? Mm-hmm. Or shot yeah. some stuff up, you know, like shit, you know, like, what if they accidentally bomb, you know, um, what's the name of the town of Poland? Um, Warsaw. Yeah. What if they accidentally bomb them, right? Are we gonna bomb them back and nuclear war happens? It's like this slippery slope, like, like, are, you know, smarter heads going to prevail or like is, you know, the rumors Putin has cancer, Putin has this, Putin has been, you know, he just like, if I'm going to die, everyone's going to die, right? Like mm-hmm. all these like wild and outlandish rumors out there, like this scares the shit out of people, you know? Well, in all honesty, I have zero prognosis as to what might happen mm-hmm. just because sometimes it feels like, you know, George Orwell <laughs> yeah, it's just his world, yeah. and everything is just so unpredictable, especially when it comes to um, to dealing with leaders who have their own delusional yeah. plans. So, I mean, who would have predicted that Putin would invade Ukraine? Like, I mean, of course, he invaded Crimea and that, that little place in Georgia. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. that's. I mean, it's big, but it's not your country, right? Not Ukraine, right? Yeah, it's. I don't know. It's it's a wild place we're living in. So moving on to some better stuff. So at 17, you got into law school. Yeah. Not just college, but law school. Yeah. How did that, how that work? So I, when I was 17, I went to law school and um, I was very fortunate. I managed to get into one of the best 
um, law schools. You have to take some kind of tests or? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, we, we had like three or four exams. Mm. I don't remember exactly right now, but it was tough. It was tough competition. So, um, but I was very fortunate that I managed to get into the law school and it, so the Russian educational system works a little bit differently compared to the U.S. Um, so usually when people go um, together like bachelor's degree, they study full time. Whilst in Russia, you also have the opportunity of um, either studying full time during the day or you can study in the evenings, um, which usually older adults do um, because they have like daytime job and um, they just study in the evenings to get an additional degree. But what I did is that I decided that I'm going to work during the day um, and study in the evenings. So I started working as an assistant to some um, criminal attorney uh, during the day. And in the evenings, I would go to law school, attend classes um, until 10 o'clock in the evening. And then it would just go like this five days a week. So off subject, what's something you miss about living in Russia? That's a good question. Um, there is a number of things that I miss. Um, the first one is the beauty, the architecture, um, the restaurants, as I mentioned. Um, it's just everything is very, very um, sophisticated and there is so much history in it. It's just like, you know, when people travel to Europe or even when Americans travel to Russia, they fall in love with the architecture. So I miss that. I also miss my friends who are still there. Not that many after the war, but a few are still there. And of course my family. So do you have like dual citizenship with us in Russia? No. Um, so I still, I have my green card mm -hmm. and I will be eligible for my U.S. passport in three years. Okay. And so the war going on, are like, you have still be going to fly to Russia if you want to, or mm -hmm. you have to like put a process in? No, so far, so far the borders in Russia, they, they're open, they're okay. still open. So that's a good thing. So I can- So technically anyone can still fly in there and visit. Yeah, I, okay. I can do that. It's just the journey takes about 25 hours one way. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not counting the layovers. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in law school mm -hmm. and you decide Fuck law school. I'm dropping out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so were you, how, like, in Russia, education, like, do you have to pay for that yourself? The government pays for it? Were your parents paying for it, the, mm -hmm. the education? So there, were, there are a few options. Mm -hmm. So if you're, like, really, really smart, um, then the government can mm -hmm. pay for you. But it's also a very... Um, it's a corrupted system. Yeah. So when they say that the government is paying for you, that usually means that you would have, um, so in order for the government to pay for you, you need to get certain grades to be accepted, you know? So, but in order to get those grades, you'll probably have to bribe the people who are checking yeah. your papers. So it's, it's a little bit complicated. Um, in my, um, in my case, my parents were initially paying for my law school. Um, but, um, as after I dropped out and then I returned to law school later, um, I was just paying for it myself. So when you dropped out, your parents were paying for it? Yeah. Well, they're like, what are you doing? You're wasting yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Have you lost your mind? Yep. Yep. They were, they were horrified, honestly. And, um, because it was their dream that I would become a lawyer, mm -hmm. a well-respected lawyer, because they thought that, you know, 
they kept telling me from the age when I was six that I would make a great lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, and um, yeah, so when they received the letter that I dropped out from law school, they were just heartbroken. <laughs> yeah. So what made you decide to drop out? Because you had been there for three years, right? Um, I've been there for two years. Two years. Yeah. And was, um, were you like, were you halfway through, almost finished? No. So... When you do this, when you do your studies in the evening, the whole process of getting your um, bachelor degree takes a little longer. It, instead of four years, it takes six. Okay. So I did like what thirty yeah. percent. Um, I actually, you know, I was what eighteen years old. Um, I was working for a company called Clifford Chance, which was a very well-reputed law firm. Um, they had their off- one of their offices in Moscow, so I was working there. Um, it was a non-legal position. It was a um, position in operations. Um, I loved it, but I fell in love with a guy from London, so... I managed to get transferred by Clifford Chance from Moscow to their London office. Uh, and um, yeah, that was all. I dropped out because I fell in love with some guy. <laughs> <laughs> and there you do a project management? Um, yeah. Okay. I was there. I was there an analyst um, in the project management office. And how long do you live in London? I stayed there for a year. A year. Yeah. Um, I love the city. I love the country. Um, I, I only have like really warm memories about mm-hmm. this country, this place. Um, but I just felt really homesick. Okay. Then you moved back. Yeah, and I moved back with a guy. You left the guy in London. I love the guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very interesting experience. You know, it just showed how how brave and stupid at the same time I was. <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone who's young has a story like that where like yeah. did something like craziness. So you went to Russia and you went back to law school. Yeah. Well, you ever just like walk back in? You have to reapply again and like do the whole process. Um, yeah, I had to reapply. I had to reapply, but it was um, it was easier than the initial exam because you know they knew me. They knew that I had some sort of like background. I did my studies, so they accepted me, and I just dedicated another four years and got my degree finally. So you became a corporal lawyer. Yeah. So what exactly is a corporal lawyer? Because people corporal lawyers like big, big exists, like, mm-hmm. you know, like all these rules and regulations, you know, what, what actually does a corporal lawyer do? So in Russia, um, a corporate lawyer does anything that a company has to deal with. So there is a bunch of issues, starting with HR, you know, when you have to hire and fire people. So I had to know everything about that. To Because I would, um, to regulations like how to establish a company, how to do taxes and all that kind of stuff. So literally anything. But in between, there was also that bit that I actually learned at the job because I was working for big pharmaceutical companies and they have their own specifics like compliance and all that kind of stuff. So a corporate lawyer is a person who knows it all. (laughs) So can you still practice a law in Russia? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you practice law here? Nope. No. There's no no, reciprocity, whatever it's called? No, there is not. But when I first talked to my husband about moving to the States and it was his idea, um, I was thinking that maybe I should continue my legal practice mm-hmm. here. And I applied to, um, I went to get my master's degree in law here that would allow me to kind of begin the reciprocity process, mm-hmm. but it's a very complicated process. I can you know? imagine. So 
I was accepted um, into UCLA, Berkeley. Um, Those are pretty big name schools. Yeah, and I was I was very fortunate because some of them also offered um, to pay for my tuition, mm-hmm. so I was very lucky. But um, I accepted the offer from UCLA, okay. and I, you know, literally two months before the program started, I just started looking through the textbooks, and I realized that I was fed up. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Okay, I can't do this. I I don't want to be a lawyer anymore." Yeah, that's not, I never understood about the United States, like. You'll take someone like whatever country it is in the world, right? Whether it be a doctor, lawyer, mm-hmm. or plumber, it's like we don't accept their their stuff in the other country, right? Oh, you got to train over again, like, like it's like, dude, he's been like a plumber in you know, I don't know, um, Saudi Arabia twenty mm-hmm. years, right? Yeah, a pipe's a pipe, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, no, he can't be a plumber, do all the other stuff over again. The education system's level, and we have his lawyers, like, then I can use some kind of credit, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess we don't. Well. You don't. That's a shame. But I think it's only fair in relation to the jobs that affect people's rights, mm-hmm. like being a lawyer, or when it comes to medicine. Yeah. Just just because they are, in my mind, very, very important areas that can um, influence one's, one's life. You know, people should actually get trained in the U.S. for that. So what were some pros and cons of being a corporate lawyer? Good salary (laughs) (laughs) is always a pro. Um, I I loved people that I got to work with because they were very smart, very well-educated, um, well-traveled, just like people who had genuine interest in life. So that was a big pro for me. Um, I also got to travel a lot for business because I used to work, despite the fact that I was based in Russia, um, I got to travel, I got a lot of business trips and I went to like Sweden, United States, Italy, you know, just a lot of countries um, in Europe. And that was great. And um, what are the cons? It's a lot of responsibility. And I think that was one of the things that actually led to my burnout, just because the level of responsibility was so high. And especially if you work on an understaffed team and you just have a lot of job to do, and especially in the field uh, when you have to deal with people's health, that's, that just puts a toll on you, takes a toll on you. So your father's a big time entrepreneur. Yeah. And then in 2018, you got you got the entrepreneur book yourself. Mm-hmm. Was your father influenced in that, or did something just came out by yourself? I think. Well, my my dad wanted me to be a lawyer, so he when I told him that I want to become an entrepreneur, he was like, "Okay, that's that's understood, and that would fit you well." Um, but he still wanted to see me as a lawyer. Um, but it was my decision. And um, I just felt like being a lawyer no longer suited me. So becoming an entrepreneur was something that made me leave my comfort zone. And I think that's what I wanted. Now, what's the first business you started? Oh, God, it's, it's hilarious. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to, to talk about it, but I guess I have to. Um, So let me give you a little bit of context. So 
when I, in 2018, we thought that we were going to move to the States, but we had like a lot of problems with our paperwork because um, the US Embassy lost our file. <laughs> um, so there was this major delay. Um, and during that time, I resigned from my job as a corporate lawyer and we thought that, okay, I would just chill for a month and then we would move to the States. But this period of me chilling uh, was like 11 months before we actually heard back from, from the um, U.S. consulate. So I was just resting from my corporate work for about two or three months. I was still waking up at eight o'clock in the morning thinking that I'm late to the office. <laughs> my husband was just laughing at me. Um, so it took me some time to just decompress from that corporate life. Mm, but, you know, I didn't have a specific idea of a business that I wanted to pursue. But at some moment, um, I was, you know, I was spending a lot of time on Instagram and I came across a makeup artist on Instagram. She was a Russian makeup artist. She was doing like pretty good makeup looks. And I had this weird idea. I told her, okay, what do you think if you create the look and I source the products and we just pack it all together? Um, you do a video of how to apply the makeup. Um, I get all the products needed to create this look and we will be just selling this bundle. She loved it. We did it. Um, I think we did like two or three looks like this. So it was a tutorial, a video tutorial and a set of products needed to recreate the look. And then you had your second business. Yes. And um, then I got my second business. So they kind of overlapped. I was still doing my first business when we came across the idea. And you idea. know this in Russia, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the idea of the second business came, um, came to me and my husband when we were traveling to Dubai. Um, we found some sponges that were produced by a brand called Spongel. Um and we met with, we kind of reached out to the founder and she's based in LA. Um, an amazing lady, she agreed and she gave us the exclusive distribution rights for Russia. So we started selling her products in Russia. Yeah, so real fast, go back to like your, your, the people losing your paperwork, right, for 11 yeah. months. <laughs> That's when a lot of people, the people in the United States realize that we have this like this so-called border crisis, you know, Mexico and Texas, all those places, mm -hmm. like all the people come over. And people will say, oh, they should do it legally, right? Well, you know, like they're trying to take it to family now. Like, you know, they're trying to come to America now to have a better life. They don't have 11 months to wait, right? I yeah. don't think people really realize that. Oh, do it the right way. Well, true, that's how we work in a perfect world. But like, if you're coming from Honduras, Guatemala, all this crime and stuff, or the case it be, or, you know, you want to move from another country. I mean, you don't have time to wait, right? That's true. That's, that's a very fair comment, but I guess we cannot influence it in any way. Yeah. Um, you know, even in our case, it actually took us way longer than 11 months because <clears throat> there was this whole process of how you become eligible to apply for a work visa. Yeah. So you have to work for a company for at least a year. Yeah. And then if the company is eligible or they have like offices in the United mm -hmm. States, they can transfer you. So you have this initial period of a year 
waiting to become eligible for transfer, then you submit your documents mm-hmm. to the consulate, yeah. and then it can take... Yeah, and then people don't realize like there's quotas for each country, right? You know, we only yeah. like send them a people of like 150,000 Russians, 85,000 people from Iraq, 50,000 people, those quotas, right? Usually, the day they send the quota out, like post, like we're gonna let in 75,000 people from um, South Africa. Mm-hmm. They're like, quotas filled up for the same day, right? Yep. I mean, it's, it's, there's a backlog of people trying to get in the United States. Absolutely, yeah. So what made y'all decide to come to the United States? Well, it's very funny because, you know, my parents used to live in the United States. Um, Have they been here to visit y'all yet? No, no. Okay. It's just, um, you know, the relationship between the country, yeah. between our countries keeps getting worse. Yeah. So it's, it's just becoming way tougher to get a visa, even just mm. a tourist visa. So um, my parents just really not willing to take the effort Um, and I understand it Mm -hmm. you know it's just you have to travel to another country to apply for a tourist visa it's just so so you being here doesn't make it any easier no okay nope I even have friends here um, so they're just like me they're Russians on a green card and their families are in Russia um, and they invited their family members to come see them uh, but their um, their requests were dismissed by the consulate. Would so. it be easier if you were an like actual American citizen? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it would still be the be same. The same, yeah. okay. Just because they're what's going on now. Mm-hmm. It's easier if I want to see my family. It's easier for me to travel okay. either back or just meet with them somewhere in Europe. So, so when you when you travel back to Russia, like. Is like a what's the process like? Do you have to like go to does someone put you aside? Oh, you came from America. They ask you all these questions. Are they supposed to leave you alone? No, I've been I've been very fortunate. Nobody asked me any okay. questions. Um, so I traveled back to Russia like four or five times in the last year and a half or two years. Yeah, so I've traveled quite a bit because I still had my business going on and I had a team of people who were still located in Moscow and I had to see them regularly and just do some paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Um, So I had to travel for business needs. um, And before this whole war um, thing, there was a direct flight from Moscow to LA and then from LA to Seattle. That was nice. <laughs> I cannot imagine flying from Moscow to LA. Only 12 hours. That's it? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, not oh, that man, bad. That's, that's not bad at all. No. I was thinking like 24 hours or something. No, 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 no. Only 12 hours. Well, I can tell you, I think about 10 years ago, there was even a direct flight from Seattle to Moscow. Did I know that? Yeah. So tell me again, why do y'all decide to move to Seattle versus all the other hundreds of cities in the United States? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so um, I got to travel to a number of cities uh, when I used to work uh, for one of the pharmaceutical companies. So I got to see different places in America. And I knew that, you know, moving to New York would be just like living in Moscow. It's, it's the same, pretty much. I wanted to experience something new. Um, and in addition to that, my husband, he had a bunch of um, job offers, like in different locations. And 
prior to making the final decision, we decided that we would go to a few places to check them out. And then we came to Seattle and I just fell in love with the city. It was a perfect mixture of nature and urban living. Okay. And so about around that time, you know, you had COVID going on, you, you immigrated to the United States, you decided to close your business. Can you talk about the decision process to, to close your business? Well, I was stubborn enough. Uh, I didn't want to close it straight away. So we survived COVID. Um, it was probably one of our worst years. Um, but I, I decided to close my business in, 20, in the end of 2021. So almost two years, you know, into into the pandemic, um, I just decided to close it because it was very very tough um, to manage my team with an eleven hour difference, and like people who were running things on the ground back in Russia, they were just not meeting my requirements. So I, I was I just kept getting um, progressively unsatisfied uh, with how the things were going. So. It just only felt natural to close the business, but it was a very hard decision for me because it was a very successful um, and money-generating business. So now what do you do now to yourself? So now what I do, um, I basically reinvented my identity. Um, You know, it's worth mentioning that when I was doing my big business, my second business, um, it involved importing stuff from the United States, bringing it to Russia, selling it there. So it just required a lot of teamwork. It required like logistics, um, just handling the goods, working with a lot of B2B businesses. So it just, it was a proper distribution business. And honestly, I got so tired of it. So when I closed the business, I started thinking, okay, what can I do that would involve, that would allow me actually to work on my own without having to deal with logistics, without having to deal with warehouses and all that kind of stuff. I just had enough. So that's how I thought that, okay, coaching would be good because I like to interact with people. I like to talk to people. And I know that sometimes I can give a pretty damn sound advice, you know? So um, I went, I, I took a course in something called embodiment. And uh, back at the time, I didn't know what that was. I just, I just thought, okay, I'm curious. I'm going to explore it. Um, and t- it turned out to be like a major course that started teaching me about my body, about my emotions, about me processing my emotions through my body, like actually paying attention to this human avatar that I have. So... Um, At first I thought, okay, I'm gonna do it for fun. Then I just got so interested in it. And yeah, from there, um, I just fell in love with what I do right now. (laughs) Why do you think some people like can control their emotions, Mm -hmm. other people let their emotions control them? That's a very good question. I think it relates to our upbringing on one hand, because 
this is, you know, just like with meditation, um, a lot of people try to meditate, but it doesn't work for them because they cannot sit down and just calm their mind for a minute. And what's it called? I think it's called monkey mind takes yeah. over. You try to meditate and all these thoughts come to your mind. Like mm-hmm. I'm trying to meditate here and all this like <laughs> random things come to your mind and people, I have a trouble with that too, like trying to close that off. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a good example of why some people cannot take control over their emotions. Imagine if we were taught to meditate as kids and, you know, by our age right now, we would be just great meditators and we would know how to do it. We would have acquired a skill. Um, and with controlling emotions, it's the same. We were we were not taught what kind of emotions we experience. Uh, we were not taught how to like dissect those emotions, how to label them, how to understand them. So it eventually led to emotions controlling us and us not clearly realizing what's happening. So I think it's, it's a skill. So here's a question for you. So I, I think all of us, like we have thoughts on our mind, like, you know, we know not to say out loud, right? You're like, this like negative thoughts, you know, like, you know, you, you should not say out loud, right? But let's suppose like whatever you thought you, you had to say, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that'd be make the place, the world a better place or worse place? What do they say? Keep in mind, you say, you know, someone has a suit on, like that's an ugly ass dress you got on. <laughs> yeah, that's an ugly dress, or like, oh, you know what? You're the worst person ever, you know, or mm-hmm. you know that kind of stuff. Because a lot of stuff, people have negative thoughts in their mind, right? They control them. Yeah. What if we had a? What if you thought you had to say in order what? That's a tricky question. Um, so it it leads me to think about us repressing what we think, right? And whenever we repress what we think, um, it just leads to emotions being blocked in the body, which leads to certain dysregulation. So from physiological perspective, I think it would be healthier to tell someone that they have an ass ugly suit, you know? Uh, but I mean, I understand from the... So, that from the social and cultural pr- perspective, we would be yeah. just nuts. It might not be too good for you, you know, yeah. from your physical <laughs> perspective, you know. Can you imagine like some, a, a guy's married and the wife says, how do you think she looks? And you had to tell the truth. And, oh, I think she's great. Oh, if she does, does she? You know, like, mm-hmm. be repercussions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think on one hand, it's good to understand like why you're not liking something because there might be something like you've had previous experience that leads you to think that this thing is ugly or um, there is a thing called like healthy aggression, for instance. And um, I think it would be a good example to use it just to answer your question. So, you know, when we go through our daily activities, we get to experience, we get to engage with certain triggers, right? Like it or not, it's just life. We are surrounded by so many people, so many things. So we get triggered um, and it's only natural to get triggered. However, what happens is that when something triggers us, we, on one hand, just like I said, um, with emotions, we may not clearly understand what's happening in us at this moment. And it's easy for emotions to take control over us, but we know that those emotions are bad, 
they're labeled as bad, for instance, anger, you know, in modern society, it is usually labeled as something like really bad, something that you're not supposed to be experiencing, you're supposed to always be nice. And it especially relates to women. Like women cannot be aggressive, women should always be quiet and nice and polite, you know, smiling and, but still, this impulse, this aggressive impulse that comes as a response to the trigger, it doesn't go away. It's still there. So we repress it. And then eventually we kind of, we kind of lose contact with our emotions because we don't want to experience mm -hmm. like this, um, this aggression and, um, we repress it all. So trying to make it all short. Um, I think if people could understand what they're experiencing in the moment that would give them a certain like buffer to process their emotion and even if you don't like something not necessarily tell the person like the truth like that dress is ugly just kind of accept that okay I don't like this dress or uh, maybe just use a sentence like I would not use this dress, you know, um, or just go and do something else. Just say, this is your choice. Whatever floats your boat, I accept it. It's not my choice and do your own shit. <laughs> yeah. So why do you think sometimes like you meet someone, you immediately, you know, meet before and instantly like, you like you have a connection, right? Mm -hmm. Like instant man, like, you know, the first of all your life, you're like instantly best friends. Other people are like, oh my God, like, I hate this person like instantly, right? Yeah. Why do you think we have those connections? Like, I think it depends. Sometimes, I mean, we have the right not to like somebody. Like, uh, <laughs> like I know, like I, I tell people, like I don't like so and so. Why not? I don't need a reason. I don't like him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to. Oh, we have to have a reason, like because he's short, tall. You know, what are kids be? No, I just that's something about him I don't like. You know. You know, I can I can give you a real life example. So when I was going to my law school, um, during one of the classes, after one of the classes, uh, one of my classmates that I've I've actually interacted with her before, she just came over to me and she said, "I hate you," and I was like, "Why?" We've never even talked to each other before. Yeah, I don't know about being that bold. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she was very bold, but you know. Even it was like 17 years ago. I still remember, you know. I can this. imagine. Yeah, I remember that too. Because like. <laughs> it was so weird. She was not aggressive. She was just bold. She was expressing mm -hmm. herself. Um, and I said, okay, well, you, you, it's your right not mm -hmm. to like me, but I, I, I've done zero things for mm -hmm. you to dislike me. And she said, well, I cannot explain it. I feel like you exist. You're, yeah. breath you're breathing in my presence. Yeah. And, and you know, um, it's actually very funny because as the years went on, um, we stayed in touch and she got to like me mm -hmm. eventually. But still that very moment. So, you know, on one hand, maybe expressing the truth is a mm -hmm. good thing because people will remember you. Yeah. <laughs> At least you know where she stands for you. Can imagine she, she said, didn't tell you that she hated you. And you were like inviting her to parties and hanging out, you know. Yeah. And she was the other time. But I don't know why I'm here for her. Well, it's, I guess it's a good thing. Um, it was a like reality check mm -hmm. because I did ask her like what specifically. She couldn't mention anything. But then eventually, sometime later, she came up with one thing that annoyed her. She said, 
you know, whenever the teacher would ask us anything during the class, you were always ready to answer. Oh, yeah. I can. I know it's a hippie. Yeah. You're one of those types. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But going back to your question, um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I think maybe some, you know, when you meet someone, they just remind you of somebody who did some weird mm. shit to you or they remind you of um, of a nasty person. Mm. So our subconscious can just work in funny ways. Yes. Next question. Burnout. Two-part question. Like, what's your definition of burnout? And the mm-hmm. second part, why do some people, like, can, like, low stress, they burn out, they freak out? Other people seem like they have no, like, burnout meter. They get to go, go, go. Mm-hmm. So... What is my definition of burnout? I would describe burnout as as an experience, both on mental and physical levels. So when it comes to mental level, that means that, you know, you are either not willing to do anything, uh, not wanting to do anything, or you just feel so demotivated by anything that you do, like, it barely makes sense. So whenever, whatever I do, it will just result in nothing. Um, So there is no kind of point in doing anything. And on a physical level, that's where it gets tricky and interesting because I think burnout always starts with physical level. And by that, I mean, we are getting very, very low on a number of physical resources such as sleep, such as proper nutrition, such as rest. So when people do not fulfill the needs of their bodies, that's where burnout usually starts. What was anxiety? What exactly is that? I think this is like the word people throw out. I'm having anxiety yeah. attack, anxiety, but what, I mean, what mm-hmm. actually is it? You know, um, that's also a very good question because... Um, when I was talking to my friends and I was telling them, oh, you know, I have anxiety, you know, I have panic attacks, they would be like, so what's it like? And um, there was this very good definition of it. So anxiety is this very funny feeling that some people experience in their belly or in the chest. And it's like, it's vibrating there and it's making you feel unsettled, like something is not right like something might go wrong. Like it, it puts you, um, it makes you feel very uneasy. So this is how I describe anxiety. And there is, so panic attacks, they kind of stem from anxiety. It's like anxiety multiplied by a million. So it makes your heart raise, like your heart is pounding, you become short of breath, um, you can get very sweaty, you can get cold. Um, so yeah, that's what it's like. Can you predict when one's going to come on or they just come on whenever they want to come on? So in my experience, they just... Back at the time when I was experiencing like major panic attacks, they were they would just come on. But now, uh, when I look back, I always realize that there was something that would either trigger them um, or something that would like gently lead to them. So they do not happen just because they happen. There is always something behind them. 
So a lot of people say, like, you know, before they publicly speak, like, I get an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. Is that exactly an anxiety attack, or is this like you being scared of doing public speaking? Are they one the same or different thing? They are different things, because sometimes you can just get, you can just have this, like, feeling of uneasiness, um, feel like, oh, you're sweating a little mm-hmm. bit, feeling like you're getting worried, what if you forget what you wanted to say, etc. And... That's like one way, but some people, they can get so anxious that this anxiety, instead of being a healthy anxiety that would lead to, um, that would lead you to kind of increase performance, uh, that would stimulate you to become more focused, to get yourself together, that can actually get out of control and lead you to have a panic attack. So that's when you just, you you cannot understand what you're doing. Like your body is doing things on its own and you're just feel a little bit insane at this moment. So um, I think what the majority of people get to experience is like the first option. So is this like totally a mental thing, physical thing, a combination? It's both. Okay. Yeah, it's always both. Okay. So what is a highly sensitive person? Mm, my favorite. Okay, so the concept of highly sensitive person became known about 10, 12 years ago. Um, so this is a person who is who has a very sensitive nervous system. Um, according to research, 30% of world's population, um, they have sensitive nervous systems. So there is a gene. And there's a test people take to figure this out? Uh, well, there is a test, yes. There is a test that usually consists of um, questions uh, like, do you like art? Do you feel overwhelmed when you is watch it? Is it like a blood test you can take? No, 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 no. Okay. It's it's usually like a paper test. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's it, it lies more in the psychological realm rather than in blood testing. Okay, and it's like... You might not know this, but it's like this, this test is like, does it show like more male, men are sensitive versus females or geographic area or ethnic background? No, it can it can be anyone. Okay. But usually people are prone to it if their parents were highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. So it's like genetically. Okay, um, so genetics. Yeah, genetic. It. Yeah, stuff. And like, do you have to know like what percentage of the world? 30. 30%, okay. 30%. Um, and so what's the pros and cons of being a highly sensitive person? Okay, so I always say this thing that being being highly sensitive is a gift uh, because it allows you to experience the world and the life in, like, you get to experience all of its beauty. So, because you notice a lot of details, a lot of little things, you pay attention to the people around you. Um, it's... It kind of gives you the opportunity. It, it gives you an additional lens as to how you see the world. And um, you get to appreciate music, fine art, like good food, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you're also usually very good at noticing small details. That's why people with sensitive nervous system make good lawyers, just because, you know, they can... Um, they can pay attention to really small details that that can make a big difference, right? Um, what are the cons of being a highly sensitive person? So, well, usually 
people with highly sensitive nervous systems, they are very anxious and they, they experience this lack of energy just because it takes a lot of energy for, for their nervous system to process a lot of detail from the environment. So sometimes people would think that they have like chronic fatigue, but in reality, that is just uncontrolled um, sensitive nervous system. So and I'm guessing like high sensitive people are, tend to be more empathetic than other people. Yeah. And do they uh, like, do they like, I'm guessing they think differently too, right? In a way, yes. Um, so I can give you a comparison, right? So I'm a highly sensitive person and my husband is not. So whenever both of us start a project, you know, I will start thinking about really small details like, okay, um, say both of us need to prepare a gift for a friend. I will think about the color of the packaging, the ribbon that I want to buy, like um, how long the present will last and like all of the details. And my husband is like, okay, I need to buy one thing and just get somebody to wrap it up, you know? So that's the difference. Yeah. So talk about breath work. What is, what is the breath mm-hmm. work? Oh, this is my favorite. Okay, so breath work is becoming very, very popular. However, it's been around for thousands of years. Um, people who do yoga, they're very familiar with um, pranayamas, like breathing techniques and all that kind of stuff. And over the last five years, breath work became one of the trending wellness um, um, approaches. So there are different types of breath works. So for example, there are like really short breathwork practices that people use to calm down. Um, if you know Andrew Huberman, um, so he did like a big podcast on uh, breathing and he's one of the, he advocates a lot for breathwork. Like for example, um, he's trying to popularize the um, uh, um a tool called physiological sigh. Like when, when you're nervous, you just take a deep breath and then a little bit extra breath and then you breathe out through the mouth. And if you com- if you do this for like five minutes, you will calm down. So this is an example of breath work. Um, but there is also another way to experience breath work, um, something called conscious connected breath work. Um, it's like when you go into severe overbreathing uh, for like an hour, you get into this very funny state. It's um, you almost feel like you're getting out of your body and you get connected with your conscious. And it's some people say that that it's really woo woo, but for some people, it's a very good way of um, releasing tension and just clearing mental debris. And this is something that you teach. Yeah something that I do. Yes. Um, I do not like teach, teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can have a group of people and I would just guide a session for them. Okay. And so is that like, how do you learn to be a, like learn to do that? Right. Like you have to take a class, like you just tell people to breathe in, breathe out, count to 10. Like mm-hmm. what's the, like the concept of that? So there are different ways how you get to learn this. Um, 
So I completed a training um, that was dedicated to understanding the basics of optimal breathing. Um, there is a lady called Dr. Billy Savranich. She's um, she's an American-based breathwork teacher. Um, she's great. Um, so I took her class, like her training module, um, and... As far as we're talking about conscious connected breathing and breathing ceremonies, um, my teacher is Ty Hubbard. Um, she's, um, she's, she's in Seattle. So she, um, she taught me how to do it. So when you do your sessions, is it like a maximum number of people you can do this to at one time? Like, yeah, usually um, I know there are people who do like huge sessions for mm-hmm. up to like a few hundred people, but I think it's just inappropriate because it's a very intimate experience. So um, uh, my sessions, they would be no more than 10 people. So let's suppose you do a set for 10 people. Yeah. And someone says, I don't get this. This is some freaking bullshit. Like, I don't mm-hmm. understand this. What, what do you do then? Well, I haven't had this experience yet, to be honest, but I guess I will always honor somebody's concerns we can always talk about it and if the person doesn't feel like they don't want to do it so it's their right not to do it so how does one become a certified coach through training through hours and hours and hours of training and um also personal practice so how do you like is there certification through some kind of program or well so i'm I'm a certified embodiment coach. Um, So I did a six month training program. Um, Then, so how it works, you usually go um, to classes that happen online once a week. Then you have a peer group where you would meet once a week with your peers. You would just discuss everything. Then you would practice certain tools and instruments while being a student and a teacher at the same time and that would last for six to eight months depending on the program and then you have like a final exam um, when you do a recording of how you use your tools Um, and then our teachers they would just look at it and see if you're a good fit if you can actually do what you're supposed to be doing and then you get your uh, certification so you talk about the test for highly sensitive people yeah can you, can you be highly sensitive like today, take the test like five years later and not be highly sensitive anymore? Um, I don't think it's going to work this way. Mm-hmm. I know that, you know, our states, like our mood can change, you know, and our physical state can change. But our genetic predisposition is not likely to change. So if I like good music, I will like it forever. If I like good food, I will like it forever. So if I don't like loud noises... There is no reason why I should, <laughs> okay. why they should start being okay tomorrow. So with the Meyer Briggs test, you know, makes you like INFJ, different things. Mm-hmm. Do certain Meyer Briggs personality um, tend to be highly sensitive versus other ones? I think there is no correlation as such. So Meyer Briggs can tell you uh, how you experience the world. Uh, or what you're prone to, um, highlight certain um, character traits, whilst, you know, you can be highly sensitive regardless of of the type that Meyer Briggs give you. 
So talk about some of the tools you use to help highly sensitive people navigate the world. Okay, so it's it's a journey. Um, what I always say is that being a highly sensitive person means that you need to honor the requirements of your nervous system. By that, I mean you need to understand what your nervous system needs. And for some people, their nervous system might need an extra hour of sleep every day. For some people um, that might need um, exercising a lot to just just to keep the nervous system intact. So it's kind of understanding what your nervous system needs at the moment um, on one hand. On another hand, um, when I say that, you know, being highly sensitive is a gift, I mean that some people work certain jobs that do not utilize this trait, but people are willing to do something that, you know, they can get very creative. So for instance, if um, you're a highly sensitive person with a deep sense of appreciate of art appreciation, but you work, I don't know, at a manufacturing facility where you just assemble cars or do something like that, something like, I don't know, something very mechanical, right? But there is still this big creative part of you that needs to be released. So we can look and see what we can, what, I don't know, hobby we can find for the, for this specific person um, to, to add to their life so they could just start using this part of their creativity. Does it make sense? It, it makes sense. So how do you find your customers? Well, usually it's a word of mouth. And right now I've been working mainly with people um, within the immigrant community and it's very funny because I've been working primarily with people who actually fled Russia because of the war. So the majority of my clients, they are in Turkey, um, they're in Serbia, so in countries that were very kind of friendly and willing to accept people who fled Russia. Yes. So off the subject, who are your mentors? Like who's mentoring you right now? Mm -hmm. Well, my teacher, uh, my breathwork teacher, Ty, she's my mentor. Um, m one of my mentors is the person who also helped me get my um, embodiment certification. Uh, and my off-the-records mentor is my husband. Okay. And then second part, who are you mentoring right now? Uh, I'm actually not mentoring anyone right now. Okay. And so, don't tell me the details, but like, I think a lot of people get wrong where they start a small business or like a golden culture, whatever it case may be. Mm -hmm. They're always undercharged, right? Yeah. So what's your process of making sure like you charge like the right price as close to it as you can get? It's it's a very good question because, you know, as I was working with a lot of my peers um, prior to my certification, it was one of the most sensitive moments because a lot of people, just like you said, they they actually could not charge any money for their work just because um, they felt the imposter syndrome, like, I don't know what I'm doing, I just do not feel confident. So um, what I do is that um, 
I know how how much people charge for for the job. So I take just the average price. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people within the community who actually practice. So I got their input. I know how much they charge. So I use that as a referral. Um, so my prices are based on that. Um, and on, a, on the other hand, my in- experience as an entrepreneur is helping me a lot because um, I feel confident in what I do just because it was my decision to start doing what I'm doing. So... When you get pushback from someone like that's too much to charge, or what do you what do you do then? You like let, break it down like this or I charge this month, I charge this month because X Y Z, or do you say okay, you can't afford me right now? Let me find you somewhere else. What are your price range? Well, it depends honestly, because on one hand, I do want to earn money, so I'm not doing this for charity. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a, you're not a nonprofit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I still want to have good food and you know eat my organic bananas. Um, that might sound selfish, but that's the way it is. But I always try to talk to people and understand why they think that like I'm overcharging. So I'm always willing to listen. Um, and I just, just like you said, I explain why this costs the money it costs. Um, if I see that the person is really in need of help right now. They would like greatly benefit from it. I can offer a discount. So just, you know, I do want to earn money, but the idea of spreading the good, the goodness is for me more important than. So do you charge like by hour, by session? Do you like, you know, by six, I give you two free sessions or is it like, is it like different for each person you deal with? So it depends what we're talking about. So I offer two types of services. Uh, I do one hour personal coaching sessions for highly sensitive people. Um, and I do breathwork um, ceremonies. So they are priced differently just because they're two different experiences. So when it comes to coaching, I charge 125 per hour um, and our session is one hour. So. That's how it works. Uh, when it comes to breathwork ceremonies, because it's usually a group work, I do it in groups. So it costs uh, from 60 to $80 per ceremony. And the ceremony lasts um, around two hours. So so for the breathwork, is it like anything else? Is there like any oils or teas or like yeah. any... Anything else that's involved? Yeah. So what I do, that's why it's called ceremony. We get all together. We get to know each other. We get to set the intention as to why we're here, what led us here. So, you know, people could clearly, um, once again, just... But these people, they never saw each other before, yeah, right? No, okay. they're just completely random people. Yeah. So my idea is to create a safe space so that people would be feeling okay to express themselves. Um, we would have like this little, um, introductory discussion, get to know each other. Then we would do the ceremony. And then, um, after the actual breath work, we would just sit together and have some Chinese tea. Okay. All right. And I'm guessing this is an inside facility somewhere or climate controlled? Um, It depends, honestly, because um, I have this place that I rent by the hour in Ballard. So I do my breathwork ceremonies there. Okay. Um, But if the the client says, 
I want to have like a group session with my friends. So, and we have this place where we want you, mm. um, I can go there and do it. It does not require any, um, specific facilities. Okay. Yeah. All I need is just, um, access to, um, to a good music player, mm. uh, some columns so that, you know, the, the sound would just spread and that's it. Okay. So who, who would be your perfect customer? My perfect customer is someone who is curious about themselves. Okay. So it can be a man, a woman of usually of the age 25 and over. Um, but I would say like the perfect, perfect customer is someone um, who's like over 40 just because during that age people get, they become very curious about themselves because they've, they've lived for, for quite a long amount of time and they want to know themselves better. So what is mental health? Mental health is an area that everyone needs to pay attention to. But none of us do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think if, just like I'm, I'm going to go back to my example with meditation. So I think mental health is, is an area that requires that every one of us develop a toolkit of how to take care of ourselves. So be it meditation, be it breath work, be it um, uh, a training routine, something when we could dedicate time to ourselves, just unplug from the world and just let our mind get into order, just to experience some stillness and peace. Why do you think that some people, you know, like one person might, you know, have to do three things and they do all three things wrong and they destroy themselves mentally, right? But another person, right, here's no other time and, and they learn from the experience, they, they get mentally stronger and stronger. Why do some people like tend to be more mentally strong than others? Mm -hmm. Well, I hate to say that, but I think it all goes back to childhood. Um, there, So one of very popular speakers right now is called Gabor Mate. Um, he's very big in the field of like mental health, of psychosomatics um, and embodiment as well. And one of his latest books is telling that, you know, a lot of diseases um, in our older, as, as we all, as we age, they stem from our experiences as ch um, during childhood. So I think if people were to have like really stable childhood um, and they were well equipped for the world, then they would be mentally stronger. But I understand that this is not always an option, unfortunately. Yeah, and then it's crazy, like, you know, you might have some people who, like, like grew up, like, you know, trust fund babies, all the money in the world, and they're, like, mentally unstable, you know, or the case would be, and the people that grew up in poor neighborhoods like, are actually more mentally strong, it would seem yeah. like. Well, that's, you know, that can be easily explained because having all the money in the world does not mean that the parents are going to love you. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're going to be there. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you have all this money, but you're going to boarding school and you're, you, know, you, you see your parents on the holidays. Exactly. And it's, it's very little. So th that would just me going, giving advice to parents um, who have younger kids, um, just be there for them. 
just support them, you know, um, love them. And that's very little. I mean, it can be complicated because kids can be loud and, you know, very active um, and parents have to do their like work their job earn money they get tired um burned out and all that kind of stuff but in reality kids don't need like fancy toys they mm -hmm. just need attention and uh presence of a loving parent i mean how many times you see like a store or a parent will sell some kid don't do are you dummy what are you doing you're, you're so stupid you know like and he's just the negative stuff you know it messes mm -hmm. with you i think yeah yeah well I understand where it's coming from. I'm, I'm not a parent, I don't have kids yet, um, but a lot of my friends, they have kids and I also pay close attention, just like you mentioned to people in the stores, I see how they communicate with their kids. Um, and it usually stems from people being very, very tired um, and exhausted. And you know, this kid is just draining them yeah, all that kids, very kids, little energy. Kids can be very draining, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Not about that. So what's something in Seattle that both someone came to visit you from Russia that you'd want to go and see in Seattle? Mm, I would get them to experience the waterfront. Okay. Yeah, because I really like it. Um, I would take them to um, to the bay in Bellevue, um, to Maidenbauer Bay, because I really like it. Mm. It's, it's very cozy, but it's very beautiful. Mm. What else? Capitol Hill with all the nightclubs. Um, and Pioneer Square is actually one of my favorites. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Pioneer Square is an interesting place. This is why on my podcast, I don't, people don't know it's in Pioneer Square. But like, it's an interesting place now, right? Pioneer Square is like one of the original neighborhoods in Seattle. Mm -hmm. But like next to my podcast studio is a post office. Other side is like a really nice Korean restaurant. Two doors down is a really nice Italian restaurant. Two doors from that is like a place called Central Saloon. This bar's been opening since 1892 to have live music every night. And like across the corner, there's all these former dinners all the time, you know, like last week I see this couple getting like wedding photos here. Harakama, mm -hmm. Waterkama Street is a homeless mission. There's like, you know, I, I won't use the term riffraff, but I don't know what I can think of right now. Like there's riffraff all around, you know, but luckily none of them are, none of them are really aggressive, you know, but it's just the, 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 the bus, the link rail, the sound of stations like two blocks away, football, baseball stadiums right here. Like, it's a happening neighborhood, but it's like, I don't know. It's like, but then the rest of Seattle is like that too, so. Yeah, that's what actually made me move from downtown Seattle. Because when we relocated, we were renting an apartment on 2nd and um, second and Pine. Um, right in the middle of it. Yeah, right in the heart of it. I mean, before the pandemic, it was really nice. Yeah. But after the pandemic hit, it just, it collapsed quite quickly. I'm like a third of Pine. They've had people murdered there, the McDonald's, all mm -hmm. the craziness. And it's like, they always say, oh, we're going to move people out. They move out and within a couple of days, it's probably not even the same people, probably like, they just said rotate neighborhoods, right? But yeah. I mean, one time I was walking somewhere, I actually walked on the third, I was like, oh shit, like, let me get away from here, right? It is, it's like, it's almost like it's all the third avenue too, right? Yeah. It's like the city, almost like whoever's in charge just gave it, but yeah, we, we can't do nothing about that. Just like let them have this little street here, right? Yeah. Well, in all honesty, um, it's just so surprising to me how a street in the middle of downtown can be just dedicated to this. Like, why is it happening there? I would understand it like somewhere far away from downtown. Yeah, and, like, you know. how much tourist money is the Seattle, Seattle losing, right? Like, yeah. Someone comes here like this summer, I'll never go to Seattle again, right? And they tell their friends, I'll never go to Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. 
but yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's some craziness. It is. Yeah. Well, what actually made me move is that one night I was out walking with my husband and my dog. Uh, we were walking down Second Avenue and two guys started chasing us. Yeah. So we just ran for dear life. Mm -hmm. Thank God the apartment was literally two blocks away, yeah. but we ran, you know. So, um, but I think, honestly, um, Bruce Harrow did a good job. Mm -hmm. Over the, over the last yeah. year. I mean, there are way less homeless people around. Um, it's, it's much better than it was. Um, I wonder where those homeless people go, where they're taking them, but. Yeah, I mean, I always think it's crazy. Like, you know, Seattle has all, all the problems they have. Mm -hmm. Then you look at Bellevue, Bellevue has another problem, right? Like, is it like, if you're homeless, Bellevue puts you in prison or something? Like, are they ship you out somewhere else? Like, yeah. how is it like the city is like 20, not even 20 miles apart? Are so vastly different is the way they handle these situations. Well, that's because a lot of rich folks mm -hmm. don't want homeless people walking around their turf. Yeah. Um, I can tell you the story because uh, I wanted to rent an apartment in Bellevue and I was talking to the manager of the building and she said, oh, you know, we have all those nice facilities and all this area is very nice. It's all connected to the mall and everywhere. I'm like, oh, perfect. But how, what about homelessness like what about homeless people she's like have you seen any i'm like no i haven't seen any that's because we have private security here yeah. so um okay. they just they just uh patrol the territory all mm -hmm. the time and send off the people who are not supposed to be there that's what money makes <laughs> it does it does um so how long have you been a coach um over a year and a half what's some things you learned that you didn't expect to learn from being a coach I learned a lot about being vulnerable because when you work with people, you have to... So I became kind of... Every client that comes to me, when it comes to working with their nervous system, um, I have to create a safe space for them because a lot of nervous system dysregulation stems from like childhood trauma, from different sorts of trauma. So whenever we come to this topic of trauma, um, people need to feel safe and accepted. Um, so I learned how to be more vulnerable and more accepting, um, less judgmental. And just, I got to kind of I got to learn how to become a compassionate witness for the people um, around me. What's the most number of clients you can handle at one time? Per day or? Just in general. Just in general. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of my resource, it usually comes to about 15, 20 clients. Okay, and I, when someone signs up for you to be the coach, like, of course, you know, it's not 24-7 access, but they, they, yeah. can you see a text at 9 p.m., hey, I'm having trouble with this. Like, what are your limitations on your clients? Well, I obviously do not expect them to text me at 9 o'clock, but I've had those, um, I had some occasions when uh, one of my clients was having a, break, mm -hmm. a breakdown. He was like on a boat in the middle of nowhere um, and he texted me um, just... Like I said, you know, being a compassionate witness, I, I do communicate with my clients. But if it's like a one one off thing, mm -hmm. that's all right. Mm -hmm. But if it becomes systemic, then that's where I have to draw a line. So you charge about an hour 
So is it like L'Oreal or else? Like, you, you know, L'Oreal works for one minute, they do the calculations, I work for one minute, it's like this amount of money, or is you have to work for the whole hour? We, we work the whole hour, okay. yeah. So it's just 60 minutes. Say we start at nine o'clock in the morning, we finish at 10. Okay. So as far as coaching, so far, what's some things you like about it and don't like so much? I like that I get to meet different people and sometimes, you know, I get to experience the world through meeting different people. And what I like is that sometimes I can have like this very tough guy coming to my sessions, but he has a sensitive nervous system. So I like um, how the outside doesn't match the inside. Um, and I get to meet people who do all sorts of stuff for work. So can be venture capitalists, can be radio hosts. It's like everyone is so different and I can see the beauty in each person. So that's what I like the most. Um, what about the difficulties is that whenever some people are more difficult to communicate with than the others and some people are more kind of they're more closed from the environment it's so then do you say hey 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 person you know like i know you're closed up but like you are paying me this money amount right like yeah might be your best benefit financially <laughs> like you know kind of open up more you know yeah well i always say that you know i admire people who despite them being so close mm -hmm. they still find um the willingness mm -hmm. to come to sessions so this is this is what i admire and if the person is not willing to open up i just remind them that there was a reason why they came mm -hmm. why they decided to actually come to the sessions so it so, helps so what's your process of having a fire client a fire client yeah like a client does it is it not working out you know like for mm -hmm. reason like they're too demanding for you or is this not a fit how do you like it well we usually do one or two sessions we see if we fit um, because sometimes, you know, people may find me like too gentle or like too enveloping, like too protective. Um, some people say that, oh, I'm perfect for them. That's what they lack in their life. And they want to find a coach that they can kind of rely upon. So different people seek different things. Um, whenever I used to have a couple of fire clients and we just we did two sessions with each of them, um, I actually realized that I was not willing to work with them. Um, and we just amicably parted our ways. So is there like a, like a, a coaching community or sound like with all the coaches that go hang out, they do meetups and event breaks together or like anything like that? No, no, no. I miss this part a lot because all of my peers, they are online. Um, some of them are in Kentucky. Some of them are in Europe. Like some of them are in um, Canada. So, but nobody's in Seattle. So do you still consider yourself a coach or entrepreneur or a combination of both? Both. Okay. Yeah. So what, what's, um, what's some lessons you'll learn about being an entrepreneur? So, being an entrepreneur requires leaving your comfort zone <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> and 
If you're willing to take off on that journey, you have to look after yourself. You have to have the resources um, and self-awareness as to what's happening with you in the process. That was one of the reasons, you know, we met um, at Founders Institute. And that was one of the reasons why um, I decided to back off and not work on my project because the project was great. It was a big dream of mine, but I realized that, okay, I do not have enough resource to pursue that project, to work on my practice and commit to my family. So I just realized that something has to be chopped off. So like there's like many different type of cultures, right? The culture for personal life, business, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And it's like anything else, like all these marketing people, all these salespeople, all these people trying to get your money right. Yeah. What's your recommendation for people out there who want to, they want to get coached, they, but how to find a coach? Because like, I get emails all the time, on LinkedIn business all the time. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jason, I'm so-and-so. I can increase your business work by 25,000%, all this you know, outlandish claims, right? Like, how, do you, how does someone like, actually find the coach that's good for them? I think just like with a good, um, with a good um, psychologist, you know, if you're willing to go um, into therapy or if you want to work with a coach, the first and the most important thing is that you have to like the person that you're going to work with. Because even if the person has all the regalia or they're super smart, but you don't like the way they talk, you don't like the way they look, and you have to pay money to be in session with this person, it's not going to work. It's just a matter of time. So that's one thing. The other thing is see if this person actually has experience with the kind of issue that you would like to address. So, um, and then just go with the flow, I guess. <laughs> so back to imposter syndrome, like people don't realize everyone has imposter syndrome, right? Like yeah. people you don't realize, like I was talking to someone one time, like you have imposter syndrome, like you have all these accolades and all this stuff, like, mm -hmm. like yeah. Why do you think everyone has this like, and, no, and it's like no one can defeat imposter syndrome, unfortunately? Okay. Um, I think there are two reasons why people might experience that. One thing is, forgive me for saying that, childhood trauma. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, when, uh, when people as kids were trying new stuff and their parents would be like, oh, you don't want to do it or you're not good at that. So that's why it kind of drains the people, uh, the people of will to do and try new things. So I think that's partly where the imposter syndrome is rooted in on one hand. Um, on another hand, people are doing something that they actually do not want to do. So for instance, their, um, their friends say, oh, it's so cool to be a coach. And the person's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try. Maybe I'll make a great coach. And they realize that mm, it's not actually, they're not doing that great. So that probably means that they should not be doing it. So how do you take care of yourself? Oh my God. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I dedicate so much time to self-care. Um, so I work out three to four times a week and that's like taking care of me. Um, that's one thing. Then I sleep a lot. I sleep like 
nine hours every day and I I closely control that so um, I have this aura ring that tracks my sleep mm -hmm. my sleep stages and if I see that there is a change or that I'm not getting enough sleep I just adjust it immediately so I'm a sleep maniac um, and what else and I always take time to kind of de-stress by that I mean if I realize that I'm getting revved up quite often. It means that I'm doing either something that I'm not supposed to be doing, um, something I'm not fit for, and then I just sit down, I analyze, and I just take a break from it. So what do you do, like, I think all of us, like, we do our best, like, say, do self-care, whatever the case may be. What do you do, like, you go a few days, oh, crap, haven't worked out, haven't done this. Like, how do you get yourself back on track? So in here, I think... One of the biggest mistakes actually people tend to make is that if they haven't worked out for a day or two or three, they start just uh, being really harsh to themselves. And I'm like, okay, well, there was a reason why I didn't work out. I was either feel, feeling lazy or feeling tired or just a little under the weather. That's fine. That happens. So if I realize that, okay, I'm in good shape to go and do a workout, Even if I don't want to do like a full one hour workout, mm -hmm. I'll go and do a 20 minute sesh. Just start little. Okay. Um, so what, what's your plan with your coaching business? Is it like mm -hmm. to be the number one brand name and <laughs> highly sensitive coaching? Like what's your vision for that? Well, ideally I'd love that. I'd love that. So I, I'm pretty ambitious, but there is a, there's still a balance that I'd like to maintain with my family life and my work. And I do not want to my, I don't want my work to consume the other parts of my life. So, um, I just want to have a fulfilling practice where, you know, I work 30 hours per week, <laughs> not more than that. Um, and, um, I earn the money that I feel that are decent. Um, And yeah, that's it. Maybe write a book. Maybe do some public speaking gigs all over maybe the country. Maybe do a TEDx talk. Yeah, maybe a TEDx talk. Yeah, so like that. So when a client comes to you, no matter what they're look, whatever level they're at, what determines that you've been successful as a coach for them? That the the issue that they brought me has been resolved, or at least that they feel like they've made some progress. So that's what I see in, in some of my colleagues uh, when they have their certain expectations from their clients and they're trying to push the client forward. They're trying to drag the client to the point where they would feel satisfied. To me, being a successful coach means that the client is satisfied. How does it work? I suppose you have a client And you don't mind, like, you, you believe I've done everything I can for this person, right? There's nothing more I can do for them. But they want to, like, oh, well, they want to keep on paying you for the sessions, right? I mean, how does that work? Of course, of course you want to get money from them, but and then it's, like, really ethical to keep charging them when you know there's nothing else you can do for them. If I can do nothing for the person, I would just ask them to stop paying mm -hmm. me money and stop seeing me. Yeah, because, you know, it should be mutually beneficial. And I have only so much time that I can dedicate to work. So 
I'd rather spend this time so that another person could come in mm -hmm. and we could do some really fruitful work rather than somebody just paying me for sessions that do nothing. Have you had a client yet where like that, whatever they're, I won't use a problem, but their challenges are like something like, man, even this size is awesome my scope, right? Have you had that challenge yet? I actually did. Um, I had a client like that and I, I've been honest with this client and I told him up front that, listen, dude, this is out of my scope. I cannot do this. Um, I can offer you what's within my scope. So um, I told him that, you know, this was the size of his problem. I said, I can just address like this bit of this whole thing. And he said, okay, I want to stick with you and address this part and then see where it takes us. And I've referred this person to a bunch of um, like therapists, um, other professionals that could help him. Um, and he actually, he's staying with me, so I'm still coaching him, but he's also started working with other professionals in parallel. You have clients all over, all across the world, right? Yeah. And do you have any here in Seattle? Um, yeah, I do. I do have a few clients in Seattle. So and I'd like to have more. <laughs> so obviously, you have to do people outside of Seattle with Zoom. Yeah. Do you do the ones in Seattle in person, or you do them in Zoom to make everything equal across the board? Um, Zoom too. Okay. It, yeah, unless the person specifically requests like a in-person meeting, but as it turns out, Zoom works for everyone best. Mm -hmm. So on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you schedule? Like, like example tomorrow, I'm sure you probably have a list of things you want to do. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure you do things one and two versus number 99 on your list? It depends. Um, so I prioritize based on um, my big goals. So I have goals that I've set up for myself that I would like to achieve um, during this year. So I always, and there's like three main goals, that's it. I don't have like a huge list because it's easier to focus on like three things rather than nine things. So if I have this big list of say 10 items that I need to do, I always start thinking like, out of those 10 items, which ones are going to help me to progress with my goals? So I do them first, they're more important, and then I do the rest. Okay, and then how's your schedule each week? Like, you know, like some people like work 80 hours a week, other mm -hmm. like, like I have a friend, he works 21 days, take two days off. Like, how do you do yours? Oh, I just, on average, I work four days a week um, because two days a week is not, like two days off are not enough for me. Um, so. I try to stick to the schedule of four is, versus is, is three. The same days off every week. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, think about else. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that that I should ask you? Anything else you want to talk about? Um. No, actually, I think we did great. Okay. Yeah, I think we managed to cover a lot of things today, mm -hmm. starting from my weird childhood, my <laughs> my travels, um, my career achievements. We got to talk about mental health and its importance and just about my professional stuff, yeah. Yes, um, we have another trip planned to Russia anytime soon? I'd love to, I didn't have anything planned yet. Yeah. Hopefully by the end of the year, I'm gonna make it, mm -hmm. um, but we shall see. I have a three week trip planned to Europe though. Okay. So. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, let me think what else, I need to ask you something else. So is Seattle gonna be your, your home? Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, during big dark, 
um, I've been having those thoughts of maybe moving somewhere where it's sunnier and warmer. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> like this, this, the month of April was like freaking tough. Yeah. April was tough. Like here, everywhere else in the United States, 60, 80 degrees sunny. You're like, you're like, what's going on? Like, yeah. And people are oh, we have, a, we have the best summer. Yeah, we have the best two week summer in the world. Mm-hmm. It's craziness. Um, so um, what's your next hike going to be? Ooh, my next hike. That's a good question. Um, Is your husband a hiker too or you do this by yourself? Well, I hike with my friends. Okay. Um, my husband, he, he joins me, but he rarely joins me on mm-hmm. hikes. Okay. Um, so I actually have a hike planned for Friday, May okay. 12th. And we're going to do like this really short hike around um, St. Edward's Lodge. So it's really short and sweet. Hopefully the weather's gonna be good. <laughs> so there's a place close by here. It's um, it's it's like I can't even remember. It's like, it's like a something HOH trail. And it's probably there. It's like the most quietest place in the world, right? So I hiked there a couple years ago. Wow. Like it's like supposedly like it's the one place where there's, there's no you can't hear no men running men 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 like there's airplanes flying over. It's only like water and stuff, right? So I went there one time a couple years ago. So that's pretty interesting. To I do that. need that. <laughs> Yeah, this, this place does have a good place to like mix of urban and, you know, nature yeah. stuff, you know. Actually, um, you having said that made me want to say one more thing. Um, and it relates to um, sensitive nervous systems. So for people who have sensitive nervous systems, it's essential to disconnect from the world. In a way, if you can go on a hike where you can hear zero sounds zero noises except for like mother nature mm-hmm. noises uh where there would be as little people as possible that would be ideal so this back to this test for hypersensitive people is this like a test online anyone take or have to yeah. come to you for that or no it's it's an easy online test um so people can just uh, type in Google like highly sensitive people test and they will find it. There are a few variations of, of this test, but all of them will be very accurate. Uh, is the scale like one to 10, 10 being most highly sensitive, one be like, you, you're like no, none sensitive at all? Yeah, so it just gives you a breakdown whether you're sensitive or not. Um, but there was recently this study where scientists tried to identify what types of nervous systems people have. And they came to the conclusion that there were four types. Um, Some of them were like sensitive nervous systems, the ones that I work with. Um, Then there were people who were mildly sensitive, sensitive um, people who are trying to avoid any like um, sensory stimulation and sensory seeking nervous systems. So sensory seeking nervous system is a complete opposite of um, highly sensitive nervous system because those nervous systems, they're very interesting in a sense that people who have them, they're usually extremely active and they're, they're constantly seeking for new experiences. Whilst people with sensitive um, nervous systems, they tend to avoid or experience like not many um, sensory experiences. So it's very interesting. Do highly sensitive people tend to be more depressed? There was no such study done, but from my opinion, 
Yes. From what I see in people, yeah, they are the ones who are very prone to being depressed or um, being very, not to say sad is not the right word, but tend to be checked out. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like if you're a doctor, you have a client, you can't, it's a medical doctor mm-hmm. privilege. It's the same thing with you. Is like, is something like coaching standard or like, if you have a coaching client, you, everything stays in that room? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Is that like some kind of law out there? That I was just like a no, practice. No, no. Right now, that's that's a big. Um, I think it's a big issue for the industry because uh, both industries that are working, like breath work and um, coaching, they're not regulated. Okay. So um, that's why there are some people who do like things as malpractice. Like tell all, yeah. Tell all books. Oh, like I had this celebrity doing breath work. I'm going to tell TMZ. Yeah. And get paid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back, back to depression. Well, no, no question. Like you said time in the future where all the science advancement were like, we're going to like, like, okay, you're like, you're, you're depressed or you have mental health issues that we're mm-hmm. going to get someone a, a, a magic pill or maybe put some kind of implant in their brain and fix everything. Do you think that'll ever happen? And, and, and that, is that even a good thing? Well, I think it will happen. Um, so my husband, he's a venture capitalist and he runs his own um, venture fund that specifically invests into um, startups into that the work in the deep tech field. What that means is that there are companies who do like very complicated, scientific products right and i know that there are companies in in the neurotech field who are trying to find a solution for depression whether it would be through brain stimulation or through implants um, but i'm sure there's going to be some sort of breakthrough sometime soon do you think that'd be a good thing or a bad thing well i mean my thing is like It'd be good because all this problem solved, but then it'd be bad because, like, do you really want everyone to be happy all the time? Like, you know, I mean, because, like, I think some probably, like, what's his name? Um, Picasso probably drew his best art, depressed, yeah. they say, you know, like, it, 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 like, do we want everyone to be the same? You know, is everyone going to be happy all the time? I don't know if that's a world we want to live in. Would you like to be happy all the time? I don't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> that's a good question, you know? And then, are you really happy? Or is it, like, drug-induced or, like, plant you know this embed in your brain you know then again like you know going down the rabbit hole if you get this like implant in you like at birth like mm-hmm. do you even know well yeah so i think it's it depends where you are at life mm-hmm. and what you do because for people who are say suicidal um i would say that would be a good thing because yeah. i think a lot of people, they can be great creators, they can be great people and just great members of society, but because they have to battle issues like depression, they cannot contribute to society uh, or express themselves the way they wanted to. So for them, that would definitely be a con. Um, and in all honesty, I have this very simple attitude. Um, I wish there were more happier people. Mm-hmm. The world would have been a much better place. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, so thanks for the talk, really appreciate it. Can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? 
last minute of wisdom. I like the way it sounds. Okay. Um, I can give you this little technique and I think anyone who's listening to the podcast might benefit from it. Um, so if you're feeling anxious or if you feel like you want to focus, but you just cannot stop doing things around and, but you need to concentrate. Um, that's what they, um, taught us a good method to ground yourself would be just to sit straight and feel the support underneath your sitting bones, like feel the chair, see if there is any tensions, tension in your belly. If there is, just relax it. Just make sure that you're sitting upright and just re re relax the shoulders and relax the jaw. And just take a deep breath. And for a lot of people, that would really help them to kind of focus and get their shit together. <laughs> Thank you. And does it matter if your eyes are closed or not? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, uh, and you can do this. You can do this on like on a subway. You can do this anywhere, right? Anywhere. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the beauty of it. That's why I like everything that relates to like body techniques and body practices because there are so many things you can do without people actually noticing that you're doing them. <laughs> <laughs> that's super glad. I thank you for being here. Today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up